Now, friends, as we come to the little prophecy of Amos, I think, first of all, that we ought to try to locate him in prophecy. We are going to find that he was born down in Judah, the southern kingdom, but he was the prophet in the northern kingdom. His message was delivered in Samaria at the king's chapel, as we shall see. And it's a most unusual message for a man to have come from such a country, out-of-the-way place, and he has a message of judgment against all the surrounding nations. And he had a global view of life and of God's program for the entire world, not only for the present then, but for the future. It makes this man a most remarkable prophet, as we shall see. He was contemporary with Jonah and with Hosea. They were prophets in the northern kingdom. He was also contemporary with Isaiah and Micah in the southern kingdom. And let me now read the first verse of the first chapter. The words of Amos, who was among the herdsmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now, this is the one that's labeled Jeroboam II, by the way, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, I want to approach this prophet a little bit different than we've approached any other prophet before. I want us to get acquainted with him personally, because to get acquainted with this man, to me, is to love him and to understand his prophecy better. Now, I want to turn to the seventh chapter and get a personal insight into this man and his ministry yonder in Samaria in the northern kingdom. I'm turning to chapter 7, verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, said to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the king's court. Then answered Amos, and said to Amaziah, I'm no prophet, neither am I a prophet's son. But I'm an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. And then you have the message. But this now brings the man before us. Now, I want us to look at him. And I have labeled him the country preacher who came to town. 
And you find, first of all, his birthplace, and where he was raised, his hometown. Six miles south of Jerusalem, there is the familiar place of little Bethlehem. The prophet had said, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth. Bethlehem has become famous. But there was another little place that was six miles southeast of Bethlehem called Tekoa. And it is not so well known. In fact, Amos is not even mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament. There is a Amos in Mary's genealogy that's given in Luke, but no relation to this Amos at all. And the little town of Tekoa that he came from is practically an unknown place. It was a place where a prophetess came and gave David a message, and David was familiar with that area because that is the area he'd gone in to hide from King Saul. And let me tell you, that's a real wilderness down there. The nation Israel today is made along by the side of the Dead Sea, a nice highway that leads to Masada, and then you can come back around through Arad and back down up through Hebron and through Bethlehem. But you don't get near Tekoa because it is over in that wilderness. And I'm sure that most of you have never heard of it. And little wonder, it's no reflection at all. It's a ghost town today. And it never was, even in its heyday, more than a wide place in the road. It was a whistle stop. It was just a jumping off place. It was a camping ground. It was really a country crossroads. And it was on the frontier. It's one of those places that we used to have in Texas where they said to get to the place you had to go as far as you can in a buggy and then get off and walk another couple of miles. Well, Tekoa was that kind of a place, 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem, in that frightful wilderness, by the way. Tekoa is in that spot. And it's the birthplace of Amos. And the only claim that it ever had to greatness is the fact that Amos came from there. Now, Tekoa is on the edge of that frightful wilderness which goes down to the very edge of the Dead Sea. It's on that ridge overlooking the Dead Sea. It's a desert wilderness where wild animals howl by night. And by day, you can see spots here and there where there was the remains of the camps of the Bedouins as they moved through that area. They did not stay. There's the blackened ground, therefore the nomad and the vagabond of the desert. The Bedouins lived there. It was a desert jungle. Adam Smith says this, The men of Tekoa looked out upon a desolate and haggard world. And this is the area in which Bishop Pike should not have gone, for this is where he died. And strange things happen in that area. There are those that even today say that it's the place of demons. Now, this was the hometown of Amos. He was a herdman. 
That is an unusual word that's used here, and it means that he was the herdman of a peculiar breed of desert sheep. They were a scrub stock, but they grew long wool because it gets cold there in the wintertime, you know. And he also says that he was a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, the literal is a pincher of sycamores. That is, this was a fruit like a small fig that grew on these scrub trees down there in the desert, and they grew at a lower level than the sycamore that we think of today. And Amos actually then had to travel to his job. He was a migrant worker, if you please. His sheep and his sycamores pushed Amos far out into that desert. He was truly a farmer. He was a country rube. He was a rustic. He was a yokel. He was a hayseed. He was a country preacher. He was a clumsy bumpkin and all thumbs among the ecumenical preachers up yonder in Bethel, where one of the golden calves was. He was that kind of a man. Now, before you laugh at him, may I say this? He was one of God's greatest men. He was a remarkable individual. Listen to what he says, verse 15 of chapter 7. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. And so God sent him all the way from way down there in the country, in the desert, in the wilderness, all the way up to the northern kingdom, to Bethel, one of the capital cities where you find the city folk living, where it was altogether different than where he came from. God called him to preach. God gave him a message, and God sent him to Bethel. And he came there. Now, it was really, at first, the capital of the northern kingdom. And it was the place where there was one of the golden calves. It was the center of culture and also cults. It was where the sophisticated and the suave folk moved. The jet set lived there. It was the place that was blasé and brazen. It defied God. It was also the intellectual center. They had a school of the prophets there. The seminaries taught liberalism there. They taught about the graf Welthausen hypothesis that denied the inspiration of the Pentateuch and the German theologian Bultmann. They went in for all the latest down there, you see. Now, what Bethel did was the thing to do. When they first introduced filter-tip cigarettes, why, Bethel was the first place that they were advertised and were used. Then it spread out everywhere. And it also was the place where they worshipped a golden calf and had turned their backs upon Almighty God. And it was the place where you could go to see the style show, the styles that would be popular the next year. Are we going to wear the wide lapel next year? 
Uh, will there be two or three buttons on the coat? Should you leave the last button unbuttoned to be in style? Well, you'd go to Bethel to find that out. Well, here comes to town this country preacher, this prophet of God, with a message, most unusual message. He's different from any other prophet. You're going to find out his prophecy is different, friends. And actually, the suit of Amos was not cut to the style of Bethel. And neither was his message cut to the style of Bethel. You didn't hear this man giving the type of messages they gave there. In the king's chapel, there was always a mild-mannered preacher, very sophisticated, well-educated, but a rank unbeliever who stood in the pulpit and gave little comforting words to the people. He gave them pablum and saccharine sweetness in the message. But now here's a different man. And when Amos arrived, they stared at him at first. But they were very indulgent, of course, there. They were broad-minded, you know. So they smiled at him. I think he had on high-button yellow shoes. That, of course, is coming back today. And I don't know whether it was ever in style in Bethel or not. But at least it was not in style when Amos arrived, and his suit didn't fit him. He, unfortunately, had the bottom button, button which he should not have done. And he had on his first necktie, and it looked like it had been tied by a whirlwind or something like that. And everyone was embarrassed but Amos. Amos was not embarrassed at all, and he created quite a stir. Here he has left the backwoods. He's arrived on the boulevard. He's left the desert. Now he enters the drawing room. He had been with these long-haired sheep out on the desert all of his night. Now he's with the well-groomed goats up yonder in Bethel. And he has left the place of agriculture, and he's come to the place of culture. Now, I think most everyone came to hear him at first. They said, we don't believe he can preach. They came out of curiosity. We don't think this man has any message. They came in amusement, but they left in anger. He was a sensational preacher. His sermons, you see, weren't cut to the style of Bethel. And today we just don't have any of those liberal sermons from that day. But you sure have Amos, and you have his prophecy, and we're going to be looking at it. Now, Amos preached the Word of God, and many people were moved, and some turned to God. But you know what happened. Organized religion there, the worship of Baal and the golden calf, they got together. They had the ecumenical movement going there so that they had the same program. If you don't believe anything, then there's nothing to keep you apart. If I don't believe anything, you don't believe anything, we can get together. And that's the ecumenical movement, by the way. And it was going great guns even in that day. Now, you have this man. We find him in the midst of all of organized religion, and they try to silence him. They try to run him out of town. And some of the leading ecumenical leaders called a meeting. And they wanted to remove him. 
They wanted to withdraw support from him. They told him he'd lose his pension if he didn't change. And there were some fundamental leaders called evangelicals in Bethel. They began to criticize him because he was getting the crowds. They tried to undermine his ministry. But God blessed him. Amos would not compromise. Amos continued to preach the Word of God. We're going to see his message in this book, but I want you to meet him today. And they had a mass meeting called of all the religions, and the inevitable happened. It was really the first meeting of the World Council of Churches, and the motto of this first meeting was, Away with Amos! Away with Amos! And now, Amaziah, he was appointed as a committee chairman to go see Amos. Now, Amaziah was a priest who went into idolatry. Does all of this sound modern to you, folks? It's the same old story. We think it's modern. It's not. It's been happening ever since man got out of the Garden of Eden. Amaziah was the hired hand of religion. He was polished, was educated, he was proud, he was scholarly, he was pious, he was a classic example of a pseudo-saint. Cleverly and subtly, he worked a master stroke. He got the king to support him because he believed that the church and state and religion and politics should be combined. And so the thing that happened was this, verse 10, back of chapter 7 now, "...then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land's not able to bear all of his words. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their land." Now, he had said some strange things, it is true. But what he said was true. And it should have been heeded by Jeroboam. Now, he had on his committee, you see there, he had the chief calf caller in the worship of the cow that was set up to worship there. And as you can see on his committee, I think he had Dr. Sounding Brass. He was the president of the School of the Prophets, proud and pompous, and he was a politician par excellence. And also there was Reverend Tinkling Symbol. He was the pastor of the wealthiest and most influential church in town. He was the yes man to the rich. He couldn't preach, but he was a great little mixer. And it's amazing the things he could mix, by the way. He didn't pound the pulpit because he didn't want to wake his congregation up, but he could sure slap their backs during the week. Now, this committee waited on Amos. Now, Amaziah has come to Amos, and he's told him in verse 12, O thou seer, go, flee away into the land of Judah. In other words, get lost, go home. We don't want you here. And there eat bread and prophesy there. In other words, you're just out for the money that's in it, and therefore we don't want you here. And now verse 13, I tell you, 
it's the crowning insult of all. He says, but prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the king's court. Now, that's the height of this man's insolence and his arrogance. And he uses here the satirical method and a satire that's not only biting, but is poisonous. He says, remember, you have been speaking in the leading church here in Bethel, the king's chapel, and you have been in the king's sanctuary, and he's dissatisfied with you. And the king attends there, and your message disturbs him. And there's a lot of people that don't like you. You don't use a very diplomatic method. You don't flatter them. You don't pat them on the back. You don't tell them how wonderful they are. You do not cultivate the rich and the affluent and that crowd. And you're not very reverent. You tell funny stories every now and then. You're not dignified. You pound the pulpit and you lack graceful gestures. You do not use a basso profundo voice as if you were thundering out of heaven. What you need is, of course, in homiletics. And you don't seem to have read the latest book. By the way, have you read the latest book, Baal Goes to Yale? Have you read that book? And, of course, poor Amos hadn't read that latest book. Now, I want you to listen to the answer of this great prophet of God, this man that preached the righteousness of God and the judgment of God. And there are those that like to call him a hellfire prophet. Will you listen to his answer and notice how gracious it really is? I'm reading now verse 14. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I am no prophet, neither am I a prophet's son, but I am a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. And then he continues on. We'll pick up that message later on that he had to give. I'll just read verse 16. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. And then he has some pretty harsh words to say to this man, Amaziah. But now we're going to come back to that here, because this is very important. Now, I ask you a very fair question. Does his answer sound like that of a fanatic? Frankly, I have one criticism of Amos. He's too naive. He's rather artless. He's rather simple. Now, down in the desert of Tekoa, he knew his way around. He could avoid dangers at home in the jungle that was filled with wild beasts. But on the asphalt jungle of Bethel, he was rather helpless. And by the way, there is a jungle in this world today. The world is a real jungle. The world, the flesh, and the devil. 
And today you'll find in church circles sometime, in the liberal circle, it's a little dangerous. And it's a little dangerous in the fundamental jungle at times. You're not really safe today. There will be someone there that will want to tear you to pieces. There'll be the roar of some big lion, Mr. Gutrocks, and he's on the board of deacons. And I tell you, you better pat him on the back. You better play up to him. And then there's the hiss of a serpent in the asphalt jungle today. That's Mrs. Joe Dokes. She's got a poison tongue. You remember James said something about poisonous under their lips? Worse than a rattlesnake bite to have some of these criticize you today. It'd be better if you were bitten by a rattlesnake. And this man, Amos, he's very naive. He says, I know it. You say I'm no preacher. I know it. I'm no preacher. You say that I'm not a prophet. Why, I'm no prophet. I'm not even a prophet's son. I'm a country boy. But God called me. But listen to him at verse 15. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said unto me, Go prophesy unto my people Israel. He says, You want my credentials? Here they are. (laughs) And may I say to you, if you give out the Word of God today, you're going to be challenged. It's quite interesting that the very day that I'm making this tape, a letter came in from Salt Lake City, Utah, and it has a very devious argument here, but he concludes, he says, I'm interested in knowing how you got your authority. Well, may I say to you, I can answer that very easily. When I was in my teens, God called me, and I knew he called me. Now, somebody says, then you had great faith, and as a poor boy, I had no faith at all. I never believed the Lord had ever let me get through school even. Be very frank with you, I had no faith at all. I just had a tremendous and overweening desire to want to do the thing. And that's the thing that prompted me to go on. But I'm now toward the end of the journey, and I have news for you. I know now I was called. And so I don't need to give you my authority, by the way. And I want to be just as naive as this man is. But he's a little too naive the way I look at it, but the Lord was leading him. Now, he wasn't giving the message of man. He was giving a message from the Word of God. He preached against sin. He was no mealy-mouthed preacher. He was not giving out saccharine sweetness and artificial light and ersatz bread. He wasn't spraying the perfume of synthetic human goodness over a lot of foul-smelling garbage. This man knew that you could not take a gallon of Shalimar perfume and pour it on a pile of manure and make it any sweeter than it was. He made it very clear that God was not soft. He was not sentimental. He was not shallow. And he did not indulge in random speaking and entertaining. 
He did not deal in vague generalities. Someone put it like this concerning a preacher several years ago. He says the way he preached was, you must repent as it were, believe in a measure, or be lost to some extent. Now, there are three areas in which this man spoke, and we are going to note them as we go through this little book of Amos when we get to them. Now, to me, the most amazing thing about this man is this. He was practically an unknown when he arrived in Bethel. He's still rather unknown, but Amos in our day is a name that is associated with another name, Andy. That is, those of us of the older generation remember Amos and Andy. Well, actually, in Amos' day, back in Bible times, it was Amos and Hosea. They went together. They were contemporary prophets. I'm sure knew each other. And as we've already seen, Hosea emphasized the love of God, but that a God of love intended to judge sin. Now, Amos, he speaks of the lofty justice and the inflexible righteousness of God that causes God to lead to judgment. I'm presented here at the beginning now. I go back to chapter 1 and start here that we might see the message of the man. I think now we know a little something about this man. He's a fearless man, an outstanding man, and he is giving out a message. But the thing that really startles me is that this man has a world view. He has a global conception. He speaks first here to the nations that were contiguous to and surrounded the nation Israel. And he spoke to the great world powers of that day. Now, that wasn't something new. Later on, the other prophets did it also. You find that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and certainly Daniel But the method of those men was first to speak of God's judgment of the nation Israel. Then they would take up the different nations. Now, Amos reverses that method. He speaks of God's judgment of the nations round about. Now, when he spoke at first there at the king's chapel, God was going to judge Syria And God was going to judge these other nations that were round about, Philistia, Phoenicia, Edom, and Ammon, and Moab. Why, everybody filled the king's chapel. He really was drawing a crowd because they were very glad for him to preach on the sins of the Moabites, you see, but not on their sins. There are a great many people today, they like for the preacher to preach on the sins of the Moabites, which they committed 4,000 years ago, or even longer. And that's all right, but don't step on our toes or you're in real trouble. Well, this man, this is one place he exercises, it seems to me, a great deal of diplomacy. And he was an eloquent man, 
although he was out yonder from the desert and he was a country preacher, he had the language of a Shakespeare. And some of his statements are eloquent statements. And he was, in my judgment, a great preacher. I disagree with Amaziah, who told him that he ought to get out of town. I disagree with Amaziah. Now I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the herdsmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. I'll not go into detail about the date. That earthquake is mentioned by Zechariah nearly 200 years after this. It was, according to Josephus, took place during the reign of Uzziah. Be that as it may, that is really not the important thing other than it does help us to see that he was a contemporary with Hosea and he's one of the first of the prophets and he is a prophet to the northern kingdom. Now, will you notice? And he said, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the inhabitants of the shepherd shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Now, this, of course, is very figurative language in many ways and very eloquent. The Lord will roar from Zion. Now, you will recall that Joel used that expression later on. It suggests the roar of a lion as it pounces upon its prey. And believe me, this is some way to begin. The Lord will roar from Zion like a lion, and it speaks of the coming judgment of God upon the nations that were round about. And the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn in the top of Carmel, shall wither. And that speaks, apparently, of a drought that was coming and of a famine that would come upon the land. It would be a famine that would extend throughout the entire land. I came over Carmel where Haifa is, and I noticed how beautiful it is there and the wonderful shrubbery they have today and the lovely flowers that are there. Must have been that way in the day of Amos, also in the day of Elijah. But now there is coming this drought, that Carmel that was so beautiful shall wither. Now we have in verse 3, a section, and I think probably I ought to give you something of the outline. To understand the book of the Bible, you ought to outline it. That's what we send out for every book of the Bible, outlines and notes on it. Now we have here judgment on the surrounding nations, that is, the nations that surround Israel. And that begins here now with the very first verse here. And it goes down in chapter 2 through verse 3. And there are certain nations that are taken up. Now, the first nation that is considered is Syria. And Damascus 
was the capital of it. Now will you notice, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have thrashed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. Now, what are we talking about here? Well, may I say to you, when he says not for just three and not for four, he's not attempting to give you a list of them. He means not three and not four, and he could have said not five, not six, for many transgressions. In other words, the cup of iniquity was filled up, and nothing now could hold back the judgment of God that was coming upon that land. Now, he says that the thing that they have done, they have used these thrashing instruments. Those thrashing instruments were sharp, and they were to beat out the grain. And that's the way that they had treated Gilead. Now, what does he mean by Gilead? Well, Gilead was on the east bank of the Jordan, It was the land that actually came up as far as the Sea of Galilee. And you have Reuben and Manasseh, rather the half-tribe of Manasseh, and Gad, the tribe of Gad. They stayed over on the wrong side. And Syria, that's right north of there, came down. Now, they had come down against God's people and just thrashed them. And he is judging them for their cruelty, for their brutality, and for their cruelty. Now, we're going to see that that has a record in the historical books of the Bible. And there's always a different reason that God judges these other nations. I read verse 4 now. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazael which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will break also the bar of Damascus, cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon, and him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into captivity under Ker, saith the Lord. Now, what we have here is God's judgment upon the nation Syria in that day. Damascus was the capital of it. And this was actually all literally fulfilled. And I didn't really intend to do that today, but I think that I'll turn back to Second Kings, the 10th chapter, verses 32 and 33. And I think we'll see there the judgment of God upon this. Nation. I'm reading now Second Kings, 10th chapter, verse 32 and 33. In those days the Lord began to cut Israel short, and Hazael smote them in all the coasts of Israel, from Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, and the Reubenites, and the Manassites from Arior which is by the river Arnon from Gilead and Bashan. Now, the land of Gilead was the place where the tribe of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh 
were located on the east side of the Jordan River. And Syria came down against them first and actually destroyed them. But now a fire is coming upon Haziel, the king, and the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Now, if you've ever been to Damascus, you actually don't see there today the original city or the original location. They claim it's the oldest city in the world. Actually, it has shifted around in that section in many different places. It's been burnt to the very ground, and this was one of the occasions when this took place. Now, he speaks here that he had even cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon. Well, now, where is the plain of Avon? If you travel from Beirut to Damascus, you go by a place that's known as Baalbek. Well, Baalbek is actually in the plain of Avon. And the ruins there are spectacular. Later on, the Romans, because it's such a lovely area, they attempted to put in a great population there. And those temples there certainly testified to it. But actually, that place, Baalbek, has been destroyed. And the great population is no longer in that area. Now, they were to be taken captive by the Assyrians. That means their captivity under Kerr. That was a province in the Assyrian Empire. It's well to have our geography before us. It makes all of this understandable. And you must remember when you're reading the Bible, you're not reading about the never-never land, and you are not reading about some place that's in outer space. We're talking about reality. Even when you talk about heaven in the Bible, you're talking about reality. Now, will you notice verse 6? Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Gezer and for four. As we said before, that is an idiomatic expression that means that there could be listed here quite a few of them. In other words, Again, may I say it, the cup of iniquity must be filled up. Now, Gaza was in Philistia, or the Philistine Empire. And he says, I will turn away its punishments because they carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. And I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces and I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and him that holdeth the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will turn mine hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, saith the Lord God. Now, here is a judgment against the Philistines. For what? For making slaves. They took a certain number of Israelites and they sold them into slavery to Edom and actually to Phoenicia. That's where they ultimately ended up. The Phoenicians were great traders, and they in turn would sell them as prisoners of war into slavery. And they would send them all over, actually, the Mediterranean world. And because of that, 
why God says he intends to judge this place. It's quite interesting that what we know today as the Gaza Strip is still an unknown quantity. It's an Arab area that's now under the control of Israel, but they're having a real problem with it, of course. But Ashdod and Ashkelon are still in Israel. And today, you will find that in Ashdod, there is a great refinery that has been put there, and a new harbor has been made there. That will become probably a more important shipping place than even Haifa has become. It is, I think, probably better located. And Ashkelon is right south of it. There you still can see the remains of the temple of Dagon, where Samson was. All of these are quite real places. And again, the judgment of God came upon these places, just as God said that it would. He says, I'll send a fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. And if we turn back to Second Kings again, this time to the 18th chapter at verse 8. Now, this is the historical record of Hezekiah. He smote the Philistines, even unto Gaza, and the borders thereof, from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. And it goes on to say how he destroyed that particular area. All of this was, you see, literally fulfilled. Here you have really an example also a fulfilled prophecy. That makes this section here particularly interesting. And it puts down a pattern for the way God will fulfill prophecy in the future. Now, we come in verse 9 here to another, that is, the judgment against Phoenicia. And the judgment against them is not only for selling slaves, because you see, the Philistines sold them to Phoenician. Phoenician turned, sold them out in the world. They were great tradesmen of the world of that day. But the important thing for breaking their treaty, you see, they had a treaty with Israel. Hiram, king of Tyre, had been a personal friend of David. And they had enjoyed a great deal of friendship. Not only worked together, they stood together. But now they've broken the treaty. Now, let me begin reading here, and I'll begin reading chapter 1 now, verse 9. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four. Now, that again, I must repeat, is an idiomatic expression, meaning not just giving them ad seriatim. He says, I'm not going to give one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten reasons, but three for four, and he said... I could just list probably a hundred, but the main ones he will mention. I will not turn away its punishment, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and remembered not the brotherly covenant. In other words, they broke a covenant that they had with Israel. But I will send a fire on the wall of Tyre, which will devour its palaces. Now... I'm not going into detail here because we did that before of how God judged Tyre. First, the Assyrian came against Tyre. He was not able to take the city. There's been a question whether Nebuchadnezzar did or not, but I think it's conceded that 
But Nebuchadnezzar did. He forced the Tyrians, and this was the great city of the Phoenicians, to retire to an island that was out some distance, probably a mile or maybe not over a half a mile. I've walked that distance through there several times, and I don't think it could be a, a mile. But anyway, they were retired out to that island. And they built their city there, and Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the old city that was on the mainland. And then uh, about 250 years later, Alexander the Great came along. He saw that city, very prosperous, very wealthy, out on the island. So he built a causeway, and he fulfilled Ezekiel's prophecy because God says they'll absolutely scrape the ground of old Tyre. And they'll throw it in the ocean. Well, he took all of that, and he made a causeway out to the island. And he took it and destroyed it. That brought Tyre to an end. This was literally fulfilled concerning Tyre. And I think it's quite interesting that he only mentions Tyre here. He goes on to say, here in connection with Tyre and Edom, Will you listen? Verse 9. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, for four, I will not turn away its punishments, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom, and remembered not the brotherly covenant. But I will send a fire on the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. And that's a very interesting expression, you see, that the very walls would be torn down. Then he moves immediately now to Edom. And the judgment against Edom is because of a revengeful spirit. And back of revenge is ordinarily jealousy. And they were jealous of their brother. You see, Edom was Esau, and Israel is Jacob. And they were twin brothers. Verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he did pursue his brother with the sword, and did cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman, which shall devour the palaces of Basra. Now, the thing is that Teman in the rock-hewn city of Petra there, everything has been destroyed that would burn. But actually, the city was hewn out of the rock. But the palaces of Basra, they've been devoured. They have disappeared. In other words, this prophecy against Edom has been literally fulfilled. And it was because of their revengeful spirit, jealous of their brother, that is, of Israel. Now we come again to another nation, Ammon, the Ammonites. And if you'll notice that we're actually moving around almost in a circle. We began with Syria, came over to Phoenicia, went down to the Philistines, and we now move over to Edom on the south. And then the Ammonites were in that area also. And now here's the judgment against the Ammonites. And what is God's judgment against them? Well, theirs was a violent crime. We are going to see that. Let me read. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away their punishment, 
because they have ripped up the women with child in Gilead. Now, the Ammonites were over on the east bank, and they, in turn, joined with the Syrians in fighting against the two and a half tribes over there that were in the land of Gilead. And they did that, that they might enlarge their border. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour its palaces with shouting in the day of battle, with the tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into captivity, he and his princes together, saith the Lord. Now, this is God's judgment against the Ammonites. And I think probably we ought to turn back and see how this was literally fulfilled. I go back now to Second Kings again, but to the eighth chapter of Second Kings, verses 12 and 13. Now, let me read these. And Haziel said, Why weepeth my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strong hopes wilt thou set on fire, and their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and will dash their children, rip up their women with child. And Haziel said, But what? Is thy servant a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord hath showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. In other words, the prophet said to him, You say that only a dog would do that thing. Well, you're going to do it. And whether this man was a dog or not, he did the very thing he said only a dog would do. And as we read here, that he would do to the children of Israel and dash their children, rip up their women with child. That was an awful, horrible thing, and that was the crime of the Ammonites, by the way.